Well, good morning. We are continuing our series through the book of Hebrews, and uh, I always, I do like to kind of go through different uh, topics in the Bible and jump around a little bit, but it is always good to kind of Take your time sometimes and go through kind of chapter by chapter a book of the Bible and see kind of the context of it. And that's what we have been doing through the book of Hebrews this summer. And we are in chapter 7. We're actually going to go through chapter 7 and chapter 8 today. And so the book of Hebrews really is a thoughtful book that is deeply reflecting on the person of Jesus and the impact for each and every one of us. It's one of the books that lays a foundation for kind of the theology of the church. It's one of the things that really kind of outlines why Jesus is different and unique and kind of lays these things out in clear, plain ways. And so it continues to talk about it today. And it also challenges us to deep things. Last week, it, uh, we talked about how Hebrews said, it's time to grow up. It's time to move forward. It's time to move on to deeper things and, and move on in your faith. Well, today uh, in chapter 7, um, Hebrews is going to talk about this character that has been brought up multiple times, and we're going to talk about it today. So Hebrews chapter 7, and in, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Because we're going through two chapters today, I'm going to skip around a little bit and not read all of it, but I encourage you, as I have been, to kind of uh, take your time this week and read over on your own and reflect on what it's saying. But here's what it says in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 7. It says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the most of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham give, gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Let's pause there, and I want to talk a little bit about this character that has been brought up several times in this book and is brought up over and over. Is a unique, interesting figure in the Bible that is actually kind of, uh, in some ways, a little bit of an obscure reference. But it's a very particular point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make and drive home over and over. But that there's something unique about this, and it points us to Jesus. So this character, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, I can't ever say it right. It's one of those names. There's different words I just can't say. But this character is referenced in the Old Testament two different times. In Genesis chapter 14 is the first time, it, and he has this encounter with Abraham. And just like it kind of recounts here in chapter 7, is he has this encounter with Abraham, and Abraham does an odd and surprising thing. Abraham gives him, uh, gets a blessing from Melchizedek, and then offers him and gives him a tithe of 10%, like was commanded in the Old Testament to give the priests, and give, uh, like the offering, to make sure we're giving that to God to support God's kingdom and the priesthood. 
So it's an unusual thing because Melchizedek is the king of Salem and is a different character, is not an Israelite. And so these are kind of some of the things it kind of outlines. It says he was, he was a king of Salem. He was a priest because that's how the offering that Abraham gave him was like a priestly offering. He met with Abraham and he received that tithe from Abraham. Um, he is also... Uh, the author here is looking at his name and the name of Salem to tell us he was a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Um, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness and Salem uh, talk, uh, refer, kind of points to peace. And then he talks about how this is a mysterious figure with no father and mother. And, I'll, uh, and it says he was resembled resembling the son of God. Now, let me just kind of talk about uh, what the author here is saying is not that he was like some kind of ghostly figure that came up and just wasn't ever born or anything like that. But what it's saying is, is all of the other priests, all of the other prophets, if you look through the Old Testament, there's genealogies over and over about them. And it says they came from this line because we know that it's prophesied that, you know, these people will be the priests. And they're in this right genealogy, and they will be the priests. And then it's prophesied about the Messiah. Jesus will come from, you know, uh, the line of David. From, uh, you know, and so all these genealogies all throughout the Bible are pointing to and making reference to and kind of confirming the prophecies in the Bible about these people. It's kind of giving them credentials. Does that make sense? It's saying they are from this line. This is what the Bible was talking about. They have the proper credentials through this genealogy, and this was significant. And this character breaks all of those molds. This character is not from the right genealogy. He is not of he is not born like into the genealogy of priesthood. He's not like of the, you know, all these right credentials, but still what happens is is Abraham recognizes something. He gives him the tithe like a priest, and he gets a blessing from him. And so it's kind of a, this unique story in the Old Testament. And the second time in the Old Testament that this character is referenced is in Psalm 110, verse 4. And in that reference, it talks about and points to the future of when the Messiah will come, and it says that he will come in the order of Melchizedek in kind of the same way, same pattern. So what the Bible does many, many times over and over, and sometimes in our culture and our world, it's hard to kind of pick up on all this, is it's giving us pictures. And it's giving us like kind of little images about what Christ is doing, what God is doing in this world. And this is an important one to this author. It's really important. He's saying, this is an important picture. This is an important thing that you need to understand about who Jesus is. Is he's coming in the order of Melchizedek. A different way than the other priests. This priest, Jesus, is not born of like priestly genealogy. That's not, that's not where they get their power. This priest is, is different than everybody else. It's a type, and this is exactly what the scripture says in verse 3, is it's resembling the Son of God 
he remains a priest forever. It's saying this is a picture of what Jesus would fully fulfill. It's a picture of who Jesus is. He is the priest now and forever. It's not saying that Jesus is Melchizedek reincarnated. It's saying Jesus comes in the same way that this character did. Unique and different from everything else. And this is an important point, and I know it's kind of a minute thing maybe in our minds, and we might read over this and not grasp it, but I want us to think about that deeply today. What does that mean? What does that mean that, that the author is trying to convey that it's really important for your life? A picture of what's to come. So let's continue to read, and I'm going to jump down in verse 11. And uh, it's, it's bringing that comparison together and, and pointing Jesus and Melchizedek together. It says this, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, that is the correct line, that's the correct genealogy of the priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established um, that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. So a priest that is coming differently than the priesthood like Aaron and the Levites that were appointed priests by their birthright. Verse 12, for when the priest is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. This is not the right genealogy. This is not the people who are supposed to be priests. Verse 14. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. He was not a Levitical priest. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus was not in the line of the priests. Verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Okay, so, so it's different. He's coming from a different power, a different place. It's something different and unique, and we understand uh, why in verse 22. It says this, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. And the oath it's referring to is saying he will be a priest forever. Verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike other high priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself for the law appoints a high priest uh, as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. 
Okay, I know there's a lot of things here, so let's just pause for a moment, and then we're going to get into chapter 8, where it really kind of points to what this means for our life. But it's, it's talking about the imperfect system, the imperfect system of the old covenant of the old law. And we've talked about it a little bit through this series where when people sinned, they had to make a sacrifice. The priest did that on their behalf. There's all this ritual and routine and all of these regulations, and they never could really live up to them. And it was a constant kind of battle of all of this stuff you had to do to deal with the reality that we're sinful people and we need God's forgiveness. Really, that old picture is an earthly priesthood. And I know that we didn't grow up in those times and in that era, but we understand what that is. We understand what an earthly priesthood is like. There's so many times that I talk to people and they're like, you know what? I, I believe in Jesus. I do believe in Jesus. And I, um, uh, I just, I'm not a big fan of churches. Not a big fan of churches. I don't want, you know, you go and you have all this routine and you do this stuff. And, you know, the pastor always is asking for money and, and you got to sit and run. You know, I'm, just not, I'm just not into it all. I'm not into all that stuff. And, and in some ways, I can understand that sentiment. The sentiment is kind of saying this. The sentiment is that I'm not in, I, I don't love all of these earthly priesthood things. I don't love all the pomp and circumstance. I don't love all the structure and stuff. And I've seen time and time again, when you look at like these earthly structures, they're faulted and flawed. And it's so problematic. And you hear stories about people who are like uh, serving as earthly priests. They do awful things in the name of God. And I don't want to be a part of that. And I've heard that sentiment over and over, maybe at more time than any other in our generation and time right now, where people are just saying, look at the church, and this is supposed to be God's place. It's so faulted and flawed. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Guess what? In many ways, the Bible agrees with you. Do you understand what it's saying right here? Is it saying that it agrees with you that the earthly priesthood is flawed. That the earthly priesthood is not perfect. That's exactly what it's talking about. Is it saying that these, all of these things are limited? And the people who, who lead these things, people like myself in the modern day and world, are limited, flawed people. God knows that and recognizes that. And this is the point that has to come clear really strongly. God does know that this is flawed. And God shows up and is telling us that the earthly priesthood is kind of that placeholder for something different. And is pointing us to something different that is not imperfect, that is perfect. It's pointing us to something else. And there are still people like me that serve as these placeholders and represent and do our best. But let's be 100% clear. There's no pretense here from this stage that me and other people that do this are faulted people. And there's times we make mistakes. There's times in churches that there's mistakes. And, and, and there's no pretense that this is perfect or we have it all figured out. 
But the scripture is telling us that there is an answer for that. And you have to understand that. That that there is that earthly priesthood, but there is an eternal priesthood that is different. That is perfect. That is what God truly intends and can only be carried out by the one who is perfect. The God of the universe, Jesus Christ. And so it was only God that could come and fulfill that role. It wasn't a role that was bestowed upon Jesus because he was born from the right family. It was a role because he was the God of the universe in power that came. And it's a true priesthood that is holy, blameless, pure, set apart. And his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient once and for all. You see, the earthly priesthood, you have to do it over and over and over again because it's not sufficient and it's imperfect. But the eternal priesthood, which is something that the whole Bible is pointing us to, is something that is perfect. And this is the dilemma that we live in in this world so many times and we have to face as people of faith is that we live in the world of the imperfect and the Bible is trying to point us to the perfect, even though we're in the middle of the imperfect. And we have to deal with that and we have to struggle through that. And sometimes it can be very frustrating because we see this earthly priesthood with all its warts and we're like, it doesn't work and it's not right. But don't be mistaken. It's just, it's just trying to get at and point to the eternal priesthood that is perfect, that is right. And when we falter and when we are flawed, the realization shouldn't be, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with it. The realization should be, that we desperately need an eternal priest. And we can't do this on our own. That should be the picture. And so my challenge to you is if you ever have kind of this image in your head where you look at and you say, I'm so frustrated, the church is so imperfect and all this stuff, recognize we know that. We know that. But what we're doing is we're doing our best to try to Point ourselves and align ourselves with something that is perfect. God's perfection. And it won't fully be realized in this lifetime, but this is where we're at right now, and all of us are participants in that. And it really, in the end, it leads us to only one conclusion, that each and every one of us have to bow our knee to Christ and say, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. I can't do it alone. Because it's imperfect. And it's something beyond me. And so the author's trying to like, say something here. And trying to explain something here. That's like, this is something big that you have to realize. That has been unfolding throughout all of history. That all of these imperfect systems were pointing to Jesus Christ. And pointing to something more. And so in chapter 8, it kind of hits to us. And points to us. And so we'll read chapter 8. It says this. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. That's nice that the author like, says, here you go. This is what I'm talking about. If you don't understand why I'm referring to this obscure figure from the Old Testament or whatever it may be, this is what I'm talking about. We do have such a high priest 
who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. It's just whatever is going on here on earth is just a picture of the perfection that exists with God. Verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They served at the sanctuary. Uh, that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern showed to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received, uh, has received is a superior to theirs as a covenant to which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. Big point right here, underlined. I will put my law in their minds. And I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Okay, this is really profound, important words. Is he saying the old covenant was a placeholder? Pointing us to something different. A person that came from a different power and authority, not from a human priesthood or earthly priesthood, an eternal heavenly one, the God of the universe. And the new covenant is this. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on my, their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Wow. Now pause for a moment and recognize the point that he's making. You see, there is, there is a struggle that we deal with in all cultures and times. We deal with the fact that human beings need the law, right? We need the law. We need rules. We need rules in place because human beings, time after time, every generation, every culture, have found to be people who do things that harm one another, right? We know that. All people have this in common. And all people in some way or another need laws, rules, regulations. Because if they wouldn't, there would be chaos. 
And this is a true fact of the existence of us and something that is just a reflection on who we are as a people is that we need, we need things to rein us in. But what this is saying is there's something better than that. You see, that's kind of an earthly law. It's an earthly commandment. It's rules. It's regulation. It's procedure. It's all of the things that are represented in the Old Covenant with the priests doing the sacrifices and the rules and all these things and everybody trying to get in line. But he's saying something else. He's saying, what if your heart was transformed? If your heart was transformed, guess what? There's no need for law. There isn't. It's a profound, big statement, but it's true. And it's something that Jesus comes and says to people. He says the whole law is summed up by love your neighbor and love God. And if you do that, you're fine. But the reality is the human condition is something that just won't allow that to exist. It's not good enough for us. We continue to push it, and our hearts are far from God, and so we, we have to make all these laws. One of the great Christian philosophers, uh, G.K. Chesterton, said, When you break the big laws, you don't get liberty. You, you do not even get anarchy. You get the small laws. So this is what Chesterton was saying. Is he was saying, when people break the big laws, the law of love God, love your neighbor, what has to come in to fill the void is thousands and thousands of little laws to make sure people fall in line. And that's the world we live in, right? Millions of stinking laws for every stupid thing. Just because people at some point or another did something stupid and made somebody mad, right? Somebody's letting their weeds grow too long in their front yard. So everybody has to have a rule if the weeds are getting... And you have to hire somebody to drive around in a little car and spy in the window and take notes about your house and like write you nasty letters and say, your weeds are getting too long. You live in a covenant-protected community and you need to get your... Okay, I'll get my weeds taken care of when I get a chance. Back off. But this is the world we live in, right? Because at some point in time, somebody said... I'm not going to do anything to take care of my lawn. Understand the bigger premise. This is what's going on all around us. Is there thousands and thousands of bras and regulations? Because people without them will run amok. And really the question that is kind of pointed to us is, if your heart is transformed by God, would you need, do you really even need all those laws? No, you don't. That's the point. It's interesting. There's a, there's a philosophical question that comes up in philosophy class 101. If you went to college and take, took a little philosophy class, there's this idea that imagine this kind of like parable to kind of think about like moral, uh, moral things. Imagine if you had a magic ring. This is what a philosopher came up with. If you had a magic ring that you could turn on its side and every time you turned it, you would turn invisible and Essentially, you'd be able to get away with anything without anybody identifying you and you never having consequences for your actions. What would you be like? What would you be like if you never had any consequences? And the point of the philosophers, he said, was he believed everyone would be incredibly 
wretched and immoral if they didn't have consequences for their actions. And it's kind of almost true. Imagine if you lived in a world where you could buy your way out of everything and you could make your own laws. I won't make, mention any politicians or anything by name. Okay, stop. I'm not, I'm not making a political statement. But imagine if you could get out of everything, would you be a moral person and make the right decision? And essentially, if you would, that's, that's your true character. That's your true morality is what you would do even if there was no consequences for your actions. And the scripture is kind of pointing to this, is saying the people, the real covenant, the new covenant, is an eternal one. It's not a thousand laws. It's one. Love your neighbor and love God. And if it's written on your heart and it overflows within you, you will be transformed. And it's so much better. So much better. But this is not the world we live in. And so you understand that this is the struggle and the dilemma that the whole scripture is very aware of and pointing us to. Is that the earthly priesthood is flawed. The earthly priesthood is temporary. The earthly priesthood is lots of laws and regulation and all these things. But there is an eternal priesthood and a covenant I'm making with you as God to human beings. That it's, you know, I will write my law on your heart. And you will follow me not because of obligation or rules or a fear of consequences, but because your heart overflows and you want to follow God. And this is way more powerful. And guess what? It's eternal. That's what it's saying. Way more powerful and eternal. And the next statement it makes is it says, and they, um, no longer will they teach their neighbor or to say to one another. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm a little excited. Okay, all right. The end of verse 10. (sighs) Okay. All right. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me. So that verse 11 isn't saying that there won't be anybody that stands up before you that is imperfect, that tells you about God. That's not what it's saying, because we know that still exists. What it's saying is, is it won't be just like only the appointed person that says that. It'll be an interactive experience where we know and experience, God, I know the Lord. The Holy Spirit has come on me, and I have known and experienced God. And it's not just being passed down from some priest that, doesn't, that is faulted and flawed. It is, I know God. I know him. I've experienced him. I have met him. And I know who it is. That law is not just written on tablets or scrolls. That law is written on my heart, and I know the Lord. You understand that the imperfect is this big status thing, a club, an organization, all of these things. That is the imperfect, temporary, earthly priesthood. 
that still in some ways is a placeholder today. But the, but the eternal priesthood is this, is do you know God? Is God's law on your heart? Has God's law consumed you? Has God filled you up? And is God in your life? And you live a life that is profoundly following the law without even like thinking or studying it or whatever. It's because it overflows from the core of who you are and your being. Because God is in your life. And the eternal priesthood, you understand the picture it's saying is, I'm the God of the universe that knows my kids. I have a relationship with them. Imagine if your relationship with your kids or your family members was just transactional to the point of you were there to get them in line when something went wrong. Imagine if that was it. Imagine the extent of your relationship with the close people were just to make sure that your kids brushed their teeth and got to school on time and followed the rules and said their please and thank yous. Imagine if that's the only relationship you had, how cold and how awful, right? And that's what the scripture is saying is, no, that's not God. And sometimes we look at God and we think that's it. He's the guy upstairs that is there to make sure that I keep in line. And that's kind of old covenant thinking. That's kind of how people thought about it. And that's kind of still how some people think about it today. And if, they, if you do, and if you have, you've missed it. You've missed the point of what it's saying. Is it's not about just keeping you in line. There's a part of that. And every parent, there's a part of that, right? Like, I don't want you to go down that road and harm. I want you to go in a di different direction. But understand, that is just a small piece. The real point is love. That's the point, right? The point is, I am there for my kids to direct them and guide them because I love them. And I want a relationship with them. And I want them to have an abundant life. And I want them to walk down a road that is life-giving, not destructive. And so I pray, and I think, and I guide. But I'm there not to just make a bunch of rules. I'm there because I love them. That is what God is conveying with this. It's not an earthly priesthood. It's not a bunch of laws. But that is a placeholder. It's a relationship. It's something that is in your heart. It's something so powerful and profound that the God of the universe is there with you and walks with you and loves you. This is the point. And unfortunately, we live in a world where sometimes the earthly priesthood gets a little bit overbearing. I know. And there's times where it's a bunch of loss. But that's not the point of this existence. And that's not the point of what God was trying to do. And so you see why the author goes to painstaking details to say all of this stuff, all of it, all of it, all of it, you have to understand was pointing to something different. It was pointing to something. It was pointing to us, our lives being transformed. 
our lives being what we were called to be. Something totally and completely new. A new covenant. Where my heart is transformed and I don't know just about God, I know God personally. So it comes upon us, and it's a challenge for each and every one of us. It's a challenge for us that have been around for a long time and been in these, these circles and churches for a long time, for us to realize that all the stuff that we do is really pointless without love. 1 Corinthians talks about all of the prophecies that people can say all of the teachings that people can do, all of the good works that people can do in the name of God in places like this. But it says this, without love, it is nothing. It's the same sentiment, the same message. It's saying the point of it is a heart transformed. And so we'll continue to do things and we'll continue to have a pastor that is imperfect, sorry, and we'll continue to have structures that are somewhat earthly. And we'll continue to have these things. But don't be mistaken, that is not the point. The point is our hearts transformed. So the question that each of us have to ask, and the deeper level that this author is calling us to, is, is your heart changed? Are you transformed by God's message, is it something that lives in you? And do you know God? Because if not, you're living in something that is old, something that was uh, a long time ago, old-fashioned and put out there, and has completely been kind of is obsolete in many ways. And you're living in an earthly priesthood that kind of, in some ways is missing the point, and you're missing what God was doing all along. And he's saying, something new, something eternal for you. Will you join me in prayer? God, we are so thankful for this picture. We're so thankful that you're doing something new in our hearts, something profound, life-giving, something incredibly challenging, but also something that is so much more powerful and meaningful than a set of rules and regulations or an organization or an earthly thing. No, God, you're calling us to love. You're calling us to a heart transformed. You're calling us to know you. And so God, today, many of us maybe need to admit that we've lived in a mentality where it's all about kind of the old covenant, following the rules, and sometimes we get caught up in that. And we forget that our hearts need to be broken and transformed for you. God, humble us. And so, God, today we come before you and we say, God, just transform us. Help our relationship with you not to be about 
like curtailing bad behavior, but instead, God, help us to be transformed. So God, we thank you for all of these pictures and images that you give us and all of these explanations and all of this history. Help us, God, not to miss the big point. The big point that you're making is that we have a high priest that is different. I want to challenge you right now in these moments just to take some time and to reflect and open yourself up and say, God, is my heart transformed? Ask yourself if, if nobody ever knew anything about your behaviors or actions or if there was never any consequences, would you, would you still follow? Or have we fallen into a, almost a shallow way of following God that's just kind of a rule-following thing. The God of the universe has come in a profound way to write his law on your hearts and so that you could say that I know him. I know God. Open yourself up. Humbly cry out to him and say, God, transform me.